in talking to the parents and saying to the parents, what do we need to support you? You're actually supporting the current generation and the future generation of rural residents. This is Rural Roots. I'm Boyan Fierst. And we are back after the Easter break. This week, my guest is Michelle Porter, a doctoral student at the Department of Geography at Memorial University of Newfoundland. We talked in her office in St. John's. Before I let you listen to that conversation, there is a piece of information you need to know. In the interest of full disclosure, you do need to know that Michelle and I have been married for these past 17 years. It's going to be pretty obvious that has little or no bearing on this conversation. The reason I wanted to talk to Michelle about her research was a presentation she gave last fall at a rural conference on Prince Edward Island. There, she made a case that we need to start looking at rural development through a different lens. This is what she said about rural living. In today's urban world, living rural is a rebellious act. It's a radical act. I think it's a radical act because people who live rural are making deliberate choices to uh, turn away from what has become a modernized urban world. In the research that I have done in rural Newfoundland, the people that I talked to, there was very, very much an awareness of uh, rural being a place where they could live life differently, where they could they could begin to have more control over uh, the way they would like to live their lives. And not necessarily a turning away from the modern life, but a balancing act, and they sense that um, there was more to the modern life than what is available to them in urban. Who are these people? In Newfoundland, in rural Newfoundland, the people living in rural um, are quite a diverse set. Uh, The people living rural value a combination of uh, family connections, people, connections to land, and connections to, you might call it nature, you might call it environment, uh, you might call it a wilderness, connections to the world, the the natural world around them. And and I think that's one of the strongest parts of of this turning away is that there is a sense among these people that you can't have this relationship to the environment and to the land and to the ocean. That is not to be had in urban environments, not in the same way, but Um, At the same time as you have that, you have the urban people who, for a variety of reasons, are living urban, but still value rural places and spend quite a bit of money to get themselves and their children into wilderness, nature, rural places, places where they can as well leave the city. So in both urban and rural populations, there is a valuation of natural places, rural places. The difference is that rural people are willing to face the hardships that come with living rural in a much more daily manner than the urban people who would also value 
wilderness and rural. I talked primarily um, to women in rural places in Newfoundland and simply asked them how they came to live where they currently live. And the stories ranged all over the map, so many different stories of how women, these women had come to live in rural Newfoundland. When they talked about this connection to land, to ocean, to nature, to wilderness, what kind of words did they use? How did they describe that connection? Mm, I came to uh, describe this, these connections quite strongly through movement. Um, there's a strong connection to uh, the way the landscape moves, um, the movements within the landscape, their movements over the landscapes. Um, I'm thinking of uh, um, uh, one woman who talked very passionately about the movement of the ocean uh, back and forth with the waves and the tides and how she always, even when she left Newfoundland, was always looking for that movement. She learned to love that movement. So she was always looking for that movement. And when she went to live in Alberta for a while, she, stopped, she talked about um, the, oceans of, um, the oceans of wheat fields and that it was only in the wheat fields she began to feel uh, some of it, she began to feel connected again to her Newfoundland roots because of the movement. Um, I can think of uh, others who spoke of the uh, moving from uh, the daily movements within the landscape, going out in the boats and onto the ocean, coming back, um, daily move or uh, seasonal movement as well. From uh, it's quite uh, it, it's still a strong Newfoundland tradition to. Um, change houses seasonally, although the, those seasons have changed. But it's always throughout history, Newfoundlanders have um, moved from one house to the uh, another according to um, what they were doing that season. And now there continues to be a, a tradition of the summer summer cottage uh, or summer summer cabin. And you know they leave their rural homes and go deeper into the bush to these these smaller houses and live as well as a community. It's not they're not going for isolation. They're going to get away from the daily activities that take them away from connection with land and connection with each other. You mentioned that they would tell you so many stories. What were these stories focused on? Right. So. Um, each story, of course, was different, but there was some real trends going on. So there was very much a narrative arc that, that, that shaped itself as a circle uh, in response to changing, uh, changing generations of, uh, uh, changing generational expectations for uh, Newfoundland, Newfoundland children as they're growing up. So, uh, first of all, there was a lot of the women um, who I did talk to who had gone away and moved back. So there's that, that circle. They left for jobs, for education, um, had been gone, you know, decades, but uh, never felt at home in their new homes in other parts of the country or other parts of the world. And a lot of times the coming back actually coincided with the decision to have children, with the decision that the children needed to be raised in this particular 
atmosphere. So to, to go back to the beginning, though, with the starting, the beginning, how did this circular narrative begin? How did this circular rural narrative begin? It begins with, um, in, in, in these women's generations, it, it begins really with, with the Codmore time. It begins with people, uh, parents, whose lives have changed so dramatically. Um, the fishing villages can no longer fish. The economy, um, the mainstay of the economy in Newfoundland is gone. So what are parents telling their children? The parents uh, are telling these children to leave Newfoundland. They want their children to succeed. Success is something they can have away from Newfoundland. And the, the, most of the women I talked to, not all, but many, most of the women I talked to were um, at the parenting age. So these were uh, women who were children during the Codmore time. And they spoke about being told emphatically by their parents and their grandparents and their communities, leave. Go, go have a good life. Um, here it's backward, here it's no good. So they were told to leave to have the good life. And that was the narrative their parents told them. Now their parents hadn't lived a narrative of go away for success. Many of their parents had lived a narrative of stay close to Newfoundland, stay close to home so that we can all cooperate to make ends meet and feed the family. Um, this was that first generation that received the message from their parents, go away if you can. And if you can't go away, you have to explain it. It's a, it, it was a little bit of um, a difficulty. There would be something in your way that wouldn't, wouldn't let you. Now, for these women who went away, they never felt at home. Um, the connection they felt to Newfoundland landscape, Newfoundland lifestyle, and Newfoundland ways of connection, connecting over land. Um, they grew up in a generation of Newfoundlanders where families all lived together, multiple generations, many, many people in one house, neighbors close together. This rural Newfoundland, and, and, and many people w may not know this because I, I grew up in rural Alberta and I had no idea about this until I, I came here and, and began some of this research, got to know rural Newfoundland. In rural Alberta, Rural is one house very, very far apart from the other, and there is an ideal of being away and remote from everybody else. In Newfoundland, the, the rural fishing communities created a lifestyle in which people, the houses gathered together, the fields that were worked were often farther away. Now, this is on the coastal area. It varies, of course. But there is a broad, larger tradition in which the houses, people settle close together. So not only is your house full of people, but other people's houses are full of people, and you're very, very close to them. And for these women, when they moved away, that connection to people over a particular landscape and the ability to know who is, who is living along a particular landscape, who's living there, what's happening with them, what's their family story, that was so, such a, felt as such a loss, a grief for them. However, there's enough exciting things going on. People adapt, people enjoy moving, people enjoy trying new things. So at no point am I saying that going away was a negative thing. In fact, it's that circular narrative for rural Newfoundland that's keeping rural 
Newfoundland alive and strong. It's that circular narrative that allows people to go out, get new ideas, experience new things, marry somebody else and bring them back. <laughs> so, but for these women, it was children or the desire to have children that made them start thinking about their life, lifestyles, their lives away from Newfoundland, a place they still considered their home. When they began to think about their own childhoods and think about the kind of childhood their children would have, they really wanted their children to have this connection to people, the connection to the ocean, to the waving landscape, to the roaming lifestyle, the movement, the childhood of movement freely in these rural areas and moving together freely so that you have little communities of children that can go out and roam the beaches, roam the, the trees, roam these paths, and without uh, adult supervision or intervention, as well as lifestyles um, which keeps them connected to their grandparents, their uncles, that knows they have a, a childhood where they know their place in the world and they know that they are loved and from which they can emerge into their future. Now, that's a universal desire people have for their kids. But for these women, it meant that they came back to rural Newfoundland. And the importance of that, I think, is that a lot of rural development policies and initiatives focuses upon particular industries, particular jobs, um, economics. And those are all important because people need something to come back to. But every uh, woman I talked to had made compromises in careers, in jobs. Their husband had made compromises in careers and jobs, or their partners <laughs> it, um, had all made compromises in order to come and live in this rural place. What they did need to stay in rural Newfoundland, because they had come back for the children. Not, not, to come back for the children makes it sound much simpler than it is. They came back to give their children a, access to a particular lifestyle. In order to have that happen, they needed to have certain things in place. And if those things to support that kind of parenting and that kind of children aren't in place, they will move back to the urban areas where other opportunities are available to them and their children. Because without those supports, they can't access the benefits of rural that they want. So without those supports, they will leave. So I think it's very short-sighted to not consider parenting and childhood as vital areas in which rural development policies need to find intervention strategies for, need to work with parents, people who work in this area, people who are looking to make rural areas vital again, need to talk to the parents. It's no coincidence that a lot of the people coming back to rural Newfoundland are people who have lived in rural Newfoundland before. They've lived the rural life. A lot of people that settle in rural places have had childhood experiences. So childhood is a key time during which children um, are exposed to the rural life. And so they are willing and see the benefit of, they, they have these connections to rural, so they are willing to come back to rural. So in, in talking to the parents, and saying to the parents, what do we need to support you? You're actually supporting the current generation and the future generation of rural residents. You need to um, continue that circular narrative for these people, and you need to be able to empower them to give their children what it is that they, they need to give them. But they're, they're having quite a bit of trouble. 
Michelle Porter, a doctoral student at Memorial University and my guest this week, makes a case that children and parenthood are often a reason why people decide to return to rural areas. They're willing to give up good careers and higher incomes to make that happen. Here is the catch. The desire to give their children a childhood in a close-knit community more in tune with the land and the ocean is not enough to make them stay in rural areas. Those parents need support to help the next generation of rural residents learn to appreciate rural lifestyle and to navigate globally connected world. Two things are going on here, I think. First of all, I think rural parents are trying to live their lives, trying to give their children the best of both worlds and not necessarily, don't feel that they are able to choose entirely a rural childhood because there is still an idea that a rural childhood is a childhood which will lead to failure because many of these children are not going to grow up and be fishermen or be farmers. But there is opportunity, perhaps. Um, there is a need to remind parents, remind people what the benefits of rural are, even people in rural areas. One of the largest challenges rural parents are facing is time. The same that urban parents would say they face. The difference is that in rural areas, there's much larger distances to cover if you're going to go play hockey, if you want your kid in soccer, if you want to go to the store, if you want your kid to go to a movie. So there's all these activities are much more time consuming. Now, even in rural areas, what you might consider the rural lifestyles, again, if you talk to the women and you ask them what they value about rural lifestyles. It's that roaming free rural childhood. But in the pursuit to give our children everything, to have their children competitive with the urban children, rural parents are spending them much, much more of their time than they want to in the car to lessons, in the car to, sh to shopping. Um, there was a comment that, you know, and this is familiar to urban parents as well. We spend all of our time in the car. We spend all of our time driving Jane here and Johnny there. We eat dinners in the car. Um, the only time they feel they get to, to, to feel that rural lifestyle is in the summer when they're away at that cabin in which they still maintain that going away from, from the house. Now, on one hand, we can start to rewrite that narrative of rural childhood because we know um, the research shows what the benefits of those kinds of childhoods are. Urban parents are beginning to be, you know, every time I open up the newspaper, everybody's talking about um, bringing urban kids back to the natural areas. Let them see trees. They need to see trees. They need to walk through trees. They're saying um, how important it is for children to feel bored, to just go out and amuse themselves. Things you can't do in many, many urban environments unless there are parents facilitating it one way or another. We need to remind rural parents that these are the strengths that their children will have. But also, we need to find rural-based supports for 
the kind of parenting that uh, rural parents may want to do. Now, this may be different in different places, of course, but the things I heard from the women that I talked to um, in their contexts, a lot of the supports would have to do with transportation. So the question, this leads to the question, what would rural-based transportation support for children look like? We need to recognize that the kinds of services and the kinds of ways we support people in urban, through bus systems, through uh, different types of infrastructure, you know, there, there's sidewalks and parks and all this going on. We need to find a rural model. We need to create rural models in which these things work. So there are, as I said, there are things going on on a limited basis, little additions to education, little weekend programs, little volunteer places. But to get that kind of an immersion, we need to sit down and think about what it means to be rural, how to respond to this. Urban initiatives do not work in rural areas. They come from a different place, they teach slightly different things, and they depend upon people being able to access enough transportation to come together. Um, I spoke with a, women, a woman in her late 80s, and she, uh, she uh, raised her children, not um, down by the ocean, but on a farm in, in, a, in, a, <laughs> in an area that there was, no, there was no coast, no fishing there. She raised her children there because she loved the work. She loved, um, she loved being out in her garden. She loved doing the harvesting. In fact, her husband had the job, and he would do. It was a sheep farm as well as a um, small-scale agriculture, and she would take care of that all while raising the children. So again, here's an, a, another key change. So you have the story of this older woman, and it's through, actually, it was through comparisons of the stories of different generations of women. It was through noticing patterns, different patterns among different generations in which I really was able to think about what it means to be rural today. Um, and what it means to be rural today is to be juggling a myriad of expectations, um, of parenting expectations of work expectations, of success expectations. So to go back to this woman, parenting wasn't, was, was something that happened around the work that she did in the rural areas. And I, and I think that's true of majority of rural areas anywhere, if, 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 if um, in, in, in the, the traditional lifestyle. If you're living in a rural area, the children are raised around all of that. They help out, they go off to play when you need to do the work on your own. They're not, you're not spending your time driving children from activity to activity every day. So she spoke, actually, she had uh, quite a few, by today's standards, but not, certainly not by her own. I think she had six children. And when she was out uh, harvesting the potatoes, for example, or laying the, the hay, she would have a baby in the carriage at the side of the field, sleeping. So that narrative of work happening around the children and the childhood being braided into that work is a different one from the story told to me by a woman who is now raising her children in their teens. She has three, three children. When the children were young, she quit working on the, the family farm because she wanted to be part of a kind of parenting that 
gave much more one-on-one -on -one attention to her children, that required driving to, to places much, much more. Now, because she wanted to do the work of parenting, and that didn't work with the work of rural, she, she left, she did parenting, she went back to school, she got some other qualifications, and she's, working, she's now working a job. She could juggle the job with parenting. Um, as, the kid, as the kids got older, her husband left the, the farm um, operation. They still live right in with the family buildings. They still live on the farm. They're very, very proud that one of their daughters um, helps out on the farm uh, once a week, that their daughter um, is a part of the farming industry, as well as being involved in a list of activities that is exhausting to me. <laughs> so I, now they live closer to an urban center in this can, case. So there's, it's, it's easier to, to juggle the amount of things. But for this family, rural work is an activity that children engage in for entertainment. Or it's part of a schedule. It's part of a scheduled life. So on Monday, you have dance. On Tuesday, you have volleyball. You know, on Thursday, you go swim. Friday, you have homework and you can have friends over. Saturday, you go out and you work the day with your uh, uncles and aunts or grandfather on the farm. And Sunday, you know, uh, that's family time. So it's part of a scheduled, very much part of a scheduled um, atmosphere. So back to some of the supports. This 80-year-old woman, this 80-year-old woman who raised her children around all of uh, around all the work of the farm, she didn't drive anybody anywhere. That was never part of her responsibilities. Somebody needed driving, her husband would do it after the work was done. The school bus came to the end of her lane to pick up the kids, brought them to school, brought them back for lunch. Obviously, the school wasn't that far away. She fed her kids lunch, and they went back and caught the bus at the end of the lane and went back to school, caught the bus back at, at, after school. Most parents are spending a lot of time driving their kids to and from school, never mind the optional after-school activities that children are enrolled in or the childcare that they need to be in. This is also the case with rural parents. The difference is that driving is so excessive that many, many parents can't, can't keep up with it, as well as doing rural work. So that begs the question, what would rural-based transportation supports for parenting for children look like? That also begs the question, what should a rural childhood be? What, what do we want to get, when we go to live rural, what do we want to give our children? Why are we living rural? These women spoke very uh, repeatedly again about the connections to land, connections to family, but then they worried. They were very worried that their children weren't actually getting these connections, even though they were living by family, even though they were living in rural and on land, because they got up in the morning, they got in the car, they drove to school, then they drove to activities. You know, and then they drove home. And their weekends were taken up for hockey tournaments and going shopping um, in, the, in the larger centers because whatever they needed wasn't available there. They were trying to live this lifestyle. But it was, this rural lifestyle 
but couldn't find the way to 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 balance it. I think so. No, of course, balance is it's it's the modern condition uh, with with all of our you know everybody's feeling time pressed. But again, I, I, um, the difference is that in these rural areas, and for these for these women, being unable to find a way to celebrate that rural lifestyle, to connect their children to that rural lifestyle, would mean they would leave. They're much more willing to leave if some of their ideals were actually not being met. They were willing to sacrifice quite a bit. But if it became too difficult to balance the multiple children's needs, they were very willing to then go to the urban centers. Of course, then you have to ask the question, why are they staying? Why are these women, why are these families staying? What is the value of rural? It's intangible, but it is, it's defined as that connection to where you are, to home. Home is what really comes up. That's how people describe these connections uh, to these areas. Home as a sense of belonging is a nearly universal concept. What is not universal is the concept of home focused on a single house with a nuclear family living inside. What changed Michelle's thinking about home was a conversation with an Aboriginal woman who referred to her home as a place where the family gathered together for a variety of reasons, to hunt, to forage, to celebrate, and to simply be on the land. Michelle used that concept to help her think about rural homes in a different way. I think it has to do with land. The only definition of rural that makes sense has to do with land. What is different about a rural home is it's a deliberate attempt to make connections, to make the environment, nature, the wilderness, to make the land our home. When I um, interviewed women and asked them, what is your favorite place in your home, in your house? Most of these women brought me to a window. One brought me to a window that was overlooking the garden that, that she loved. Now, this was, the, this was the woman who was in her 80s and who was just continued to do gardening as long as she could. And now that she couldn't do it anymore, I think it was her, her children and grandchildren that maintained it for her. She loved to sit at the window and continue to look at it and to look at the trees. Um, another woman brought me out to the front window in her living room and said, and showed me the view and said, look at this, this is why I'm here. Another one took me and went to a window and described to me how her sons would follow their father uh, down to the wharf, even when they were too young to fish. And one of them used to just cry his eyes out when his dad would leave without him, but he was just too young to go. They took me to windows and showed me the land outside. That was their home. Home becomes a known landscape across which you can move across through your memories, you can move across physically, you can move across through the people that you know. Home is actually the place where we come together. Home has been long defined as a place of retreat, and it's often lived that way uh, by people today. But that is a sense of home based upon, you know, bourgeois 
Victorian sensibilities and male sensibilities at that time that that home was defined as a place of retreat because it was the man going out the work to work and retreating to his castle. This ex idea of home as retreat is very much a cultural and temporal phenomenon, which hasn't fit the way people actually live and certainly didn't fit the way Aboriginal peoples have lived their lives. The fact that many Aboriginal peoples have been forced to live in this stationary home, in this house of a nuclear family has been quite damaging to their cultural practices, to their knowledge of the land, to their claims to land even. But the whole idea of home still continues to evoke for Aboriginal groups and for non-Aboriginal groups living in this one house. And even the research with non-Aboriginal groups shows we do not live that way. There's a whole booming area of research about second home ownership and the way people feel at home in their multiple homes or about the cabin ownership. What I think is really, really important in the idea of gathering that's rooted in the Aboriginal sense of home is that it's actually rooted on the land in which we are gathering. In the traditional sense of home, it's a house, but we don't really, you don't have rights to anything much around you. You have this house. If you're very wealthy, you have land around you, but the majority of us don't. And whether you're renting or whether you're owning, even those rights are fairly, can be fairly limited. It's not rooted in the land. Home is ways of gathering, reminds us that we are part of the land, that we make our home on the land, and we forget this at our peril. We need to remember that the way we make home, which is what, is, what is home? It's the way we live. So the way we make home is in many, many ways destruct, destructive to our environment and so destructive to ourselves. And it's because we have limited our home. We have limited people's rights to claim home to this very small space, to this, this set of rooms and a kitchen. Um, and perhaps a piece of green in the back, if you're lucky. The deliberate choice to return to rural, to, to return to rural Newfoundland to make home is the rejection of home as a house, but a return, a desire to return to home as ways of gathering. Because that's what these women described to me, these different ways of living, these different ways of connecting with people and connecting with the land. Now, as is to say, these are all environmental idealists, not at all. But it's a beginning if we're going to save the land and the rural and the environment of the future to remember that the intentional valuation of land that happens in so much of rural, not all of it, of course, but so much of rural, and that I think is, is so muted in the discourse about rural. I think so much of rural has become talk about resource and resource exploitation and how can communities benefit from it. But the real undercurrent in rural among people who don't get a chance to show how they value this, because even in rural, today you still own attractive land. You own a house on a bit of land, and that's yours, and you don't really have a right to say anything about 
you know, the mine down, you know, the mine down the road or the oil drilling that's going on or a host of other issues. You can have your say, but you don't really have an impact upon the choice or the decisions that are made. But in these small decisions, just just speaking with their feet, these people are turning back to saying home is ways of gathering and we're struggling with how to make this work. We don't know, but we know it's about something different. That's the radical act. If you go to any rural conference, you talk to any rural geographer, any rural, any person studying rural areas, it's not looking good. People are leaving rural. People are uh, not able to make a living in rural. And just as in Newfoundland, a lot of times the people leaving are doing so reluctantly. But they must leave and they make the decision to do so um, in order to, you know, as many as, as Generation Newfoundlanders did, make a better life. The idea that people are valuing the land enough um, to try and find ways to engage with it, even if it's part-time, even if it's on the weekend. It's a place to start. It's a place to begin. It's a place to say, okay, let's look at what the land means to all of us. And from there, we can look at how to support different ways of gathering on rural, different ways of making home, different ways of gathering to make home in rural areas. There's so much potential. There's so many possibilities. We can create the rural we want to have. We have only to imagine it. So at the end of the day, when you finish your research, you close your computer, you close your eyes, and you imagine some future rural Canada. What does it look like? Well, I, I can waver between two sides. Uh, the one I like to think about is uh, an amazingly um, complex, uh, beautiful, and, and integrated place that has been able to find solutions to connecting people and to immersing children into rural childhoods and supporting parents in the many different ways they want to do this. There's also an apocalyptic vision, which a much more apocalyptic vision, which recognizes the challenges that we are facing as a society, the global challenges in which rural will be the place in which so much of the impacts of climate change are going to play out. And I say this because, yes, much of the climate change will create chaos in cities. But the responses to that will happen in rural areas. Because what are the difficulties that are going to happen in cities? Clean water. There's damage from storms. Um, there's food systems breaking down. Climate change refugees, climate change migrants. Where will most of these solutions be found? in the rural areas. We will need to turn again to the rural and reorganize how our food is grown and distributed and reorganize how people are placed on the land. Does it make sense in worsening weather conditions to have people living as they do in urban areas? Perhaps we will have some architectural solutions coming to that. I think in the short term, certainly, we are going to 
return to the rural areas, return to the rural areas. And it will happen two ways. One, we will have excellent leadership and we will have people in, in leadership positions who understand both the potential of rural areas and of rural ways of gathering and the importance of organizing the rural areas so that we preserve water, so that we preserve ecosystems, so that we preserve areas where people can grow food. Or we have people running to rural pell-mell <laughs> in, 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 without much thought, without much organization. Over the long term, though, I see rural as being the most vibrant place. Should we get through this time of crisis, should we get to the other end with some semblance of our vision intact at the other end? The people who are returning to rural right now don't want to turn away from connectedness, don't want to turn away from globalization or global connections, global, the global world. They want to live differently within that connectedness and within that world. If that plays out in a positive way, rural can be rural areas and people living in rural can lead the way to a life in which there is balance between modern living, between the human need to do things better and faster, and the other, the paired, the twin human desire to connect with the land in very real, meaningful ways and to connect in communities and connect with each other in very real, meaningful ways. I have hopes that this radical notion that the land matters means that people can come together in these rural areas and make the world a better place, as simple as that sounds. And I think a lot of that will come from rural areas, even if it's only because, because of the fact that cities will have a lot of trouble withstanding the tensions and the impacts that will come with climate change. That was my conversation with Michelle Porter, a doctoral student at the Department of Geography at Memorial University of Newfoundland. Michelle is interested in rural childhoods and the ways in which we make home. I am saving a big portion of our conversation about home and complicated politics of who gets to claim one and what it actually is for another episode. Most of this episode focused on rural childhoods and the changing nature of rurality and its possible futures. My name is Boyan Fierst and I'm the host of Rural Roots. My day job is at the Leslie Harris Center of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland in St. John's. This show is produced in collaboration with the Harris Center, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership, bringing together rural scholars and policymakers in Canada and abroad. I have provided some additional resources around Michelle's work on our website, ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, rural, 
R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. If you have any questions about the show, you can email me from the website. From there, you can also follow me on Twitter and find us on Facebook. If you listened to Rural Roots on your campus or community radio, please let them know if you liked this episode. If you listen to the podcast version of the show, feel free to encourage your local radio station to get in touch if they're interested in broadcasting any of the episodes. The show is available to community and campus radio stations free of charge. It is also available through the National Community and Campus Radio Association Program Exchange. That's all for today. You just listened to Rural Roots, a show that asks what is rural in the 21st century. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us next week. My guest will be Bill Reimer, one of Canada's most important rural scholars from Concordia University in Montreal. Don't miss it. To subscribe to the podcast, visit ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. Cheers. Cheers.